Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. All right, Michael, let me paint the scene for you. It's nighttime. The helicopters are chop, chop, chopping. They have sprayers. It's a gorgeous air type of photography where you're looking at the bottom of the helicopters and then them from the front. There's that constant chop, chop, chopping. And then we have a, a low light sign that says Medfly Quarantine Area that slowly comes into brighter light. This is the introduction of Shortcuts. The subject of today's rescreening, Oltman's 1993 film, which I think we both liked quite a bit. Is that accurate? I think this is, uh, you know, drinking the movies, history making, both a perfect five from us. I think this happened with the Thin Red Line. I think that's, I, I think I gave that a five. Yeah, I could maybe go down with this one. I mean, there are things that I I definitely dislike, flaws but... the second time around, but... It just, it, it kind of put this funky red patina on it, you know, and it just, it, it made it even better. Speaking of which, we are drinking a funky red patina today, courtesy of Hellbent Brewing Company. Delicious as always. But before we jump into shortcuts, shall we do a first impression of our next rescreening, tiny, rescreening title? Let's do it. That next rescreening title is Fritz Long's The Big Heat. Why don't we stop the cross-examination? I didn't come up here to talk out of school. Why did you come up? Why don't we call it research or something? All right. We just watched the trailer for Fritz Lang's The Big Heat from 1953. How do you feel about this title? I feel like it told me it's a picture of big excitement. There you go. Um, I... This is not what I was expecting. However, the vast decades of critical appreciation um, still have me, you know, very excited for this film. It's just not quite structured, at least in that trailer, in the way that I expected it to be. It reminds me a little bit of, like, Key Largo, particularly with the interior shots and um, just kind of the the way that the sets are dressed, um, looking outward through the windows without any... um, kind of commitment to location though, which is maybe where Key Largo went different. Um, I'm anticipatory, but I'm uh, unmoored. I'm unsure of exactly what I'm about to get into, but uh, I like it. How about you? Yeah, not the most persuasive trailer by any means. This is one off of YouTube. Um, I don't even have a great sense of what the story of this is about well the four um, girls that are alive when he meets them presumably aren't alive after he meets them there you go it's got vice dice and corruption as the uh dialogue on screen tells us um I, it must have been within the first six months or so of the podcast that we did a like dedicated classic noir episode i feel like we haven't mm-hmm. circled back to noir in a while which is always territory i'm excited and willing to revisit so for that reason alone uh i'm pumped i feel like we did uh humphrey bogart a little bit i think we touched on a little bit of noir 
You're right with the uh, John Houston. That that's yeah. where we got to Key Largo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah. I guess Rafifi isn't noir, but oh yeah, I'm, uh, noirish for sure. Um, that was our Dassin episode. Did yeah. we do a Dassin episode? Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Naked City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've that's touched right. it a bit. There you go. Just not enough for your greedy hands. <laughs> it's just good stuff. All right, on to shortcuts. Robert Altman's masterpiece. Recutting the works of Raymond Carver. So virtual reality is practically totally real. But not. I'm gonna like somebody. Where are you going, Gene? Uh, oh, yeah. This is the third night this week, Gene! Going further. He's playing around, I can Jane. smell it on him. And I was born to be free. Can we have a little more butter, please? Coming up. Yeah. I came home, I told Earl our whole life could change. Earl tells me to go on a diet. I'll find a way to keep well, this house is half mine, yeah, you know. Is that a joke? Lady, I work 16 hours a day to make ends meet. Yeah. I bake all night and work all day. I thought you made phone calls at night. I said, Ola, if I have one more beer, I'm gonna have to take a nap. And she says, I wondered what it would take to get you into bed. It's only fitting that we rescreen a title that was essentially recut on the the page by Altman and his co-writer. These characters are based on numerous characters that do and don't exist in his stories and scenarios that are primarily pulled from his stories, but interwoven in a way that they were not originally and in a location that they were not written in. Despite all that, it feels completely organic and natural to me. Was that your um, interpretation as well? Did this feel like uh, life as it may have been in the suburbs that you hear the highway reports about in Southern California. It's very organic. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I, think I would call it a network narrative. I think that's a common description of these kinds of movies where you have a bunch of individual stories uh, coming together to kind of form a mosaic. And I do think that's kind took of the, the word, the phrase network narrative. Nope. Mosaic. Oh, there, <laughs> there yeah. Yeah. Um, I think with those kinds of movies, yeah, you can sometimes have creaky joints in where the stories are coming together, but this does um, gel extremely organically and smoothly um, and without any real kind of um, undue emphasis on where they all intersect. I think that's something. Sometimes what can rub me the wrong way about a network narrative is they can seem a little proud of themselves for connecting all their, you know, different dots. Yeah, for sure. I think this does come together um, in a very easygoing fashion. I completely agree. There's a few moments I think that, you know, most dated is the big one at the end of the film. Um, I I still like it as like a a falling action climax uh, aftermath thing. But there's just something very dated about it now. But it still makes it quaint and charming. It doesn't remove from the film. It just definitely places it in a point in time. Um, Building on that, though, 
I, I think this is a film that we're going to have a lot to compliment about. And let's just get our critical eye out of the way first. What, uh, what did you actually not like? Who did you think was the weak link? Yeah, so we have 22 different characters, probably a few more than that, actually. I think there are kind of there 22 main characters. And yeah, there are definitely some that work better for me than others. I think one that comes to mind maybe doesn't work so well for me is the cellist, um, mm. who I'm forgetting her character's name off the top of my head it's Lori Laughlin is that right the Lori actress singer Lori singer her real name yeah, Lori Laughlin is the uh uh college admissions yeah. scandal victim and her uh, her real name and or her name in the film rather is Zoe Trainer, and her mom is Tess Trainer, played by mm. Amy Ross yeah um she is a a cellist I think right mm-hmm. um a real life cellist yeah and she this character also plays a lot of basketball uh, mm-hmm. in her driveway, and she has this kind of interesting relationship with her mom and her uh, late father. That character still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I just that's one character whose traits I don't know that I buy. Something about mm-hmm. just the basketball and the music together. Not that that can't happen in one person. It just doesn't quite sell me. But it's not a uh, huge detriment to the thing overall. Interesting. That's that's definitely one that did work for me. Um, let me take the counter here. And rather than the fact that the character doesn't work, let me say that the performance here, I actually don't believe. And it pains mm. me to say this because I chose this person and then I rewatched the film. Mm. And my weak link is Frances McDormand. Mm. I have a very hard time believing that she is the seductress that she is attempting to play. Mm. Um, there's very little believability in her looks uh the way that that just her body and face present themselves in situations is very unbelievable there's fun actions she takes where she's holding a knife at peter gallagher and then picks up some fruit and throws it at him while he's uh telling her to put her panties on to her lover who's on the phone um but the these scenes in which she's in the cafe with Tim Robbins, um, the scenes in which she's pulling up in the car at the end, I just don't believe that this is uh, sincere, which um, is only a testament to how great the other performances really are. Hmm. Um, you know, whether it's Robert Downey Jr. elbowing a, a girl on a towel on the couch, mm-hmm. or if it's just Lily Tomlin being everything that is true in a performance. She's very believable. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have the exact same reaction to Frances McDormand, but I don't have any trouble um, believing that. I, I, I could totally see that. Um, I don't know that this is a complaint, but I guess something I'm still just working through, which is a little more general than about any specific character, which is kind of the ad- the movie's attitude towards death in general. I think mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like this movie comes a little too close to feeling almost kind of nonchalant about it or like it's kind of shrugging off some of the death that we um, see uh, within these stories. Um, Like, I don't think the Chellis's suicide is all that affecting for me Um, in a a way that I kind of dislike. I wish there was a little bit more like gravity to that or something like that. Um, And I don't know that the little boy's death actually hits me in a big way. And I kind of wish it maybe 
did. I almost wish there was a little bit more heaviness to those really real tragic moments. Um, but yeah, still wrestling with those, I guess. It kind of goes against the movie's um, otherwise very relaxed um, feel. Yeah. Um, there's a few different things to key in on there. Um, let me primarily focus on I think Altman is playing a service to Carver, and I think that Carver in particular, um, he writes about sex, but is very sexless. Um, there's there's not really an anticipatoriness, there's just a matter-of-factness, and that matter-of-factness breeds over into violence, actions of violence, and also death. Um, the deaths in M.A.S.H., the deaths in Images, they're very affecting and played totally differently than here. Uh, the player, as well, there's a key death there that plays very differently. Um, here, though, it is just kind of a matter of fact, and you're observing the reality of the situation, and you're removed from it constantly by the camera through the veneer of a glass surface, a fish tank, a window, whatever it may be. And I think that that preserves Carver's voice, and I think that maybe that's more a reflection of like your taste in cinema than um, maybe it being bad because i i responded very differently i really liked how singer was uh the the cellist here was unmoored and you could tell that she was suffering internally that she didn't fit in socially right her first action is faking death in the pool Mm -hmm. um other than when she's playing the cello and um you know she's being observed by these other people um but no one's really actually seeing her they're just kind of dealing with her um and the only people that she's really socializing with are kids that are like half her age. Um, and she she just seems like a, a ripe um, back character to me that, that just is experiencing emotions that we are not privy to. And, um, you know, just one day the camel's back broke. That's kind of, that's the newspaper at some level. I don't know. I like that. But I, I totally get why you don't sensibility wise. Yeah, I don't, well, I mean... You just, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it, if it's that is not to my taste. I guess it's that I think the movie is, in a way, trying to capture, say, the the grief of Andy McDowell and Bruce Davidson's character when they lose their son. I don't know that there's as much depth of feeling to that loss as I think there there could be to give the movie even an even greater weight. Um, and that very well could originate with Carver, um, but I think. There is a certain degree to which the movie um, kind of brushes it off and sort of moves right along. Um, I don't know. I still feel like it um, could have given those even even greater seriousness or something like that. Um, But uh, don't get me wrong. I like this movie overall a lot. Yeah, I think it's there's something about the the particular direction here and then the the detachment that is necessary with like a network type screenplay, like you're talking about where, because you're not just spending time with Annie McDowell, making phone calls to her mother while she's crying. Um, and you know, spending 30 minutes of the film with her sitting by his side in the hospital room, fretting, um, that the movie isn't just about that. And I think that sometimes when a movie isn't just about, um, the suffering or like the the grievances that these characters are experiencing, it detaches a film in a way. And often it's very uncomplimentary because normally films are focused 
on that and don't realize that they're losing something. But for me, it just um, it heightened that network quality that you reference um, because there's there's all these different deaths, all these different places, and all these different day-to-day sufferings different ways and you don't know that Chris Penn is suffering and then you can't help but know it and detest him for it there's uh mm-hmm. there's just there's so much richness and depth to these characters but the film is about all of them and none of them um and somewhere in that meaning that i just said is the reason why there's that detachment i think i might not be right yeah, I, I do think it's a kind of remarkable that with this many characters, you just have to think that a movie runs the risk of kind of reducing all of its individual characters to single dimensions. You know, you have Tim Robbins, the cop, you have uh, Claire, the clown, but they're always more than just whatever sort of uh, surface trait were initially given to sort of uh, distinguish them from one another. Um, that's partly just dialogue texture that just always sort of reveals the fact that these are living breathing human beings um and it's definitely the performances too that just um imply all these other sides of the characters that we might not see firsthand um i still know claire the clown first and for first and foremost as a clown but i very much believe that there is a um full-bodied person beneath the clown paint you know yeah, once you get to spend time with her and Julianne more in that Fellini-esque mm. evening, you know, she really mm. comes to life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so we divided up the 22 different characters between us. For good or ill, we, we did We can it. give this a shot, I, shall I we? I don't know why we did it, but we definitely did do it. And there's not really any correct way to talk about this movie because it's too big and too long and too complex. So let's give it a shot. You or me first? Uh, you go first. All Get, right. Pick anyone you want. Tell me about a character. Someone you like or not so like. In or just no find interesting. particular order, um, I'm going to go with, I think, the film's most charming character. You want to take a guess? Is it Lily Tomlin? It's close. Mm. It's Jack Lemon. Ah, okay, okay. Which is a great lead-in if you want to pick uh, his son. Um, so Jack Lemon, let me reference my um, little sheet here, plays Paul Finnegan, the father of Bruce Davison's Howard Finnegan, and the grandfather of Casey Finnegan, who is the child that is hit by the car in the film, played by Zane Cassidy, who is a stuntman's son, as we learned Mm -hmm. in our documentary. Um, So, Jack Lemmon is a tragic character. He's introduced um, as a sweetheart. He's brushed off by Claire the Clown as uh, stupid, essentially. And you can't Mm -hmm. help but feel... Uh, emotional for him. There's there's something about the way that Jack carries his uh, his torso, uh, the way that he inflects his his shoulders and um, lets his chin do a lot of mood talking, depending on the way that it is angled. Um, and he introduces us to this egg trick that he'd apparently been trying to get into a movie for like forty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just this charming scene where you can tell that he has nothing but good intentions, but is. Um, you know, kind of socially ostracized. Mm. And 
as the film progresses, you come to learn the event uh, that happens in which his son was involved in a car accident and he had gone to install a refrigerator uh, for his wife's sister. And his wife's sister had uh, come downstairs after taking a shower and opened her robe and uh, an affair had ensued. And while his son had crashed the car and gone to the hospital, his wife couldn't find him. And she found him, but was in such a state of shock that they didn't even, that she didn't realize or they didn't have a conversation about it for some time. And just the conviction about his explanation as he's doing that, the fact that Andy McDowell calls on the phone and the scene is, is abruptly brought to an end, but Jack is still wearing all this emotionality on his face. Um, and, you, you know, he, he really is trying, you can tell, but he keeps saying Kevin or Ka. And, Can't and, get the name right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's waiting for, for Andy or Howard to, to tell him what the name of the child is. It's, um, I don't know, it's, it's a heart-wrenching, like, true-feeling character. Um, and Jack is just so immensely charming in it. Um, he's, he's probably one of my favorite characters. Yeah, it's funny. So I watched it twice. You did twice as well, right? Uh-huh. Or did you do it third time? I just did twice. Yeah, just twice. It's a long movie. Three hours and eight minutes. You do it twice. Two is plenty. The first time I did not really respond to Jack Levin or that character because I was just a little unprepared for the like monologue he delivers to um, Bruce Davidson, his son's character in the hospital. And like I just kind of like zoned out and I just didn't catch all the detail. So mm-hmm. I just kind of just had no response. And then the second time around, that ended up being one of the more um, tragic moments in the movie for me. I think more so than all of the death. But I think I was maybe characterizing him just a little differently in my own head where I definitely found him to be one of the more kind of pathetic characters in a way. Um, I don't know how much I pity him. I, I found myself feeling very sorry for Bruce Davidson's character, Howard, in that moment when his dad is talking and Howard's just sitting there very, very uncomfortably listening mm-hmm. to his dad kind of tell this story. And, you know, we get the idea that they've been estranged from each other. Jack Lemon obviously has not been in his son's life, given that he doesn't know his own grandson's name. Um, and the fact that he comes into the hospital on this day of all days when his son's son is... Um, unconscious essentially after being hit by a car and turns this into a day about himself um, and talks about his his infidelity and I kind of like I don't know about you but I don't believe him when he says that this had only happened one time with Ola Um, to me this is a tragic moment in which uh, Bruce Davidson's character is realizing his dad is kind of as as selfish as other and he, he can't really bring himself to to confront his dad about it, but maybe Jack Lemon finally realizes that he has no place here, and that's why he walks away at the end of that scene when Casey's dying because he realizes he doesn't he doesn't really earn the right to be here on this day. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely agree with a lot of what you've said there, but just the real life um, of it of. You know, the grandson you've never met is in the hospital and um, your your ex-wife's uh, sister who you had an affair with calls you and tells you that he's in the hospital and has been hit by a car. There's um, that it's a very common, I think, natural thing for 
estranged family members to show up at that time. Um, I've definitely experienced stuff like that myself. And so there's something deeply true about it. And there's something deeply true about um, uh, someone like that showing up and making it about themselves. Oh, yeah. And not having a negative intention either. If they're like maybe a good person, um, which I think Jack might be here. Um, mm. I think he might be a good person who made really bad decisions and is stupid. Um, oh, and, yeah. I think he's totally oblivious to the fact that he's making this about himself when his son is in a state of panic. Yeah. So f- I, I don't that I just like that ugly reality. I like the yeah. truth there. Yeah, I, I, I like it a lot, too. Um, and Jack Lemmon seems to me like one of the characters who has more of this classic style of acting. It's very exterior you know Mm -hmm. he just feels like he walked in out of a like movie from the 40s or something like that with his kind of um outward the outwardness of all of his gestures and manner of speaking you know other people can seem to be a little bit more interior in how they reveal things like it's night and day different from someone like chris penn you know jennifer Mm -hmm. jason lee's wife um he's great um i I will say that i think his eyes actually do show a fair amount of interiority Mm. Um, Jack's, for me at least, maybe I was projecting. Um, Why don't you take over? Well, I'll then switch to maybe Bruce Davison and Andy McDowell together. They are Howard and Ann Finnegan. Uh, Howard is the news anchor uh, who we see at the beginning of the film reporting on the medfly infestation that is ongoing throughout L.A. He's having a moment of pride when he gets in bed with his wife, Andy McDowell, uh, to watch himself on TV. Um, Do you such really a, need to wear your glasses? Such a human moment. He's so... He couldn't be prouder of himself to have this moment on television. Andy McDowell is a little distracted, more concerned about him wearing his glasses. Super funny, but very real. Um, you know, I think you can c- kind of get a sense for who all the people in this movie are by where they live and how they dress and their places sort of like the cottage kind of look of a house that's out of something like country living. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's any McDowell in the way she usually is with this kind of Southern hospitality about her. Um, I feel like they're one of the more romantically secure couples in the movie. Um, there's very little tension between them um, as a couple. Um, and they're also some of the better or more conventionally good parents in the movie. Um, they're very loving and concerned about their son, obviously. Um, I like both these characters um, quite a bit. And uh, uh, yeah, how, how did you like these two? I mean, I, I love Andy McDowell's performance. I think that her performance is like the linchpin of the whole movie. If she isn't that good, the emotionality of the moment that kind of defines the film, her son getting hit by a car, means nothing. She has to have that interiority and put on that face where she decides to stay and she asks for the mail and then she she reframes and she says, you know what I mean, the magazines, give me a pair of flats, you know, and, um, you know, she's trying to act like it's no big deal, um, but it's a huge deal and you know that because you just saw her clutch her child to her breast uh, before they came to the hospital and, you know, say Casey and shake him and shake him and shake him. And it is, uh, it's the best performance probably in the entire film. Um, 
I really like Bruce Davison. He just is the character. Um, I don't really have much more to, to say other than like he is exactly who he needs to be, and he yeah. never gives any hint of not being that. I would completely agree. Um, he Some people just seem to come a little bit closer to the audience than others, and some can recede a little bit more into the background. He kind of does. I kind of feel like Andy McDowell is the one sort of attracting our attention between the two of them. Um, but yeah, I feel like with any kind of common theme you try to um, come up with that reaches across all these characters, you end up finding one couple that, you know, violates whatever rule might you, you might come up with. And while infidelity or really messy romantic relationships is one kind of common thing, I feel like they are the exception to that, of that rule of the movie and that they are very secure um, from the looks of it um, and, and very good parents to their son. Um, and that works, I think, like just as much as all of the things in common that these characters, uh, everything that these characters have in common can be valuable, but it's like the things that they differ on that can be just as interesting. Yeah, and it's where that luck and unluck shows different facets mm-hmm. of the dice roll. Um, well, let me parry to a group of characters as well. Let's go with two. I'll go ahead and give you the breakdown on Tom Waits mm. and Lily Tomlin. These characters' names are Doreen Piggott and Earl Piggott. Uh, there's a few different stories that these characters are referencing. Um, primarily, it's a story about um, that doesn't actually come to fruition here uh, about Earl um, making his wife get on uh diet after that scene that happens with the getting the mm. butter um in the short story and that's like the whole of mm. it and then he shows up at the cafe at the end of the short story and is like you like what you see eh? Eh, look at that mm. <laughs> and all of her co-workers are worried because she's lost like 18 pounds or something in a month from not eating <laughs> mm-hmm. um but these characters in the film itself are uh, quite different. Tom Waits plays someone with a job. In the short story, he doesn't have a job. Hmm. Um, and he's he's very seedy. He's very much a representation of Raymond himself. Um, you know, a, a hard alcoholic that is trying to hide the fact that he's drinking from the woman that he loves, but also doesn't um, know how to properly emote around. Mm-hmm. Um he just fits with her, and that's kind of all he knows. Uh, in the short story, it's very much a reflection of Carver, whose first wife was uh, a waitress while he was going to college and paid for everything. And then he was unemployed, taking care of the kids. Um, so you can you can see a lot of Raymond Carver in this. And I think Altman maybe is playing this character um, that Tom Waits is, like, he's, he's put more of himself into it. So it's both Raymond and Robert. And what I what I particularly like about Waits is that he knows that he's being shitty, but mm. he's got you could tell in his face that he's got like a plan for how he's mm. going to come back from it this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that I'll just give you a, a moment. My favorite moment with Tom Waits is uh, in the middle of the film, maybe two thirds of the way in. Um, when Jennifer Jason Lee shows up, he's kind of the the introduction mm. to when we arrive at the bar, and he strolls in and he tells them whiskey and a glass, I think. Mm. And then he turns his wallet over while he's watching the singer, totally looking away. 
and he just empties the entire contents of the wallet, not looking. And then he closes the wallet and puts it in his breast pocket, looking at the stage the whole time. Then he reaches back without looking for the glass. Never seen the amount of money that he took out of his wallet because he knows it's insignificant. This is such a great uh, visual scene that just tells you everything about the the interiority, the background, the history of this character. It just mm-hmm. it says it all. Um, and pivoting quickly to Lily Tomlin, my other favorite, probably my favorite actress of this whole thing. Um, she's our instigator. She is driving correctly she is driving the speed limit and the boy comes running down the hill doesn't look both ways crosses gets hit by the car and she gets out frantically absolute stellar performance because it's a one shot Mm -hmm. um with him running her hitting getting out of the car following him worried shaking breathing heavy at the top of the hill hunched over sweetie are you okay it's just it's magic. It's magic on film. And um, it's just the introduction to her character. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a scene where she's getting butter. This will mm. all reference later with my three fishermen um, mm-hmm. when I talk about them. Um, so I'll just move along to the relationship with her daughter, who I think is one of yours. Um, I think you have the daughter there. Mm-hmm. And the relationship here i think is the most interesting out of all the parent children relationships that we see in the film because there's a level of honesty and humility um where she accepts her daughter's judgment but um and doesn't even disagree with her but just kind of says like you know that's great for you but this is my life um you know Mm. and i'm gonna stay with earl and you know this is um you know, I'm going to complain about it and we're going to fight. And, you know, this is par for the course, just like she yells at the neighbor. Nothing you haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. But um, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. And there's just um, there's a naturalness that Tomlin brings to most her performances that is extremely present here. And she she just builds out this sense of purpose and life um, and identity that is unmistakable. Yeah. Um, Lily. Taylor's character, who is Lily Tomlin's character's daughter, uh, her name is Honey Piggott Bush, which is a way quirkier name than I feel like she actually comes off as on screen. Um, I don't think I even realized that was her name while watching the movie. Um, But yeah, I do like that mother-daughter relationship, especially because it feels kind of reversed to me, where Lily Taylor almost feels more like the parent to Lily Tomlin when she comes over and it's criticizing her, talking about her mom's drinking, talking about her mom's smoking, and it feels more like a reversal of um, parent-child roles there. Um, there's that unsettling exchange where Lily Taylor's talking about uh, not caring for Earl, and she kind of alludes to something that might have happened between the two of them, or that Earl might have done to her or something like that and lily tomlin's character you know says you've told that story too many times or something like that those little nuggets that intimate something much darker than sinister um yeah you you would otherwise have noticed um can really stick with you yeah yeah it's um i don't think that i'm familiar with the story that her character is based on honey's particular um there's not something in the short story that earl's based on that has anything like that. So I don't know what the mm-hmm. background is there. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'll run with Lily Taylor then, unless you have more to say. No, no, unless you uh, have more to reflect on about um, folks that I mentioned. Oh, well, they also have one of my, uh, one of the moments I think was super funny, which is during the earthquake while everyone else is panicking, Lily Tomlin and Tom Waits do their, like, little dance into the doorway. Yeah. Awesome. The glass doorway, by the way. Like, the yeah. last doorway you're supposed to actually be. <laughs> there are sad drinkers out there, and there are happy drinkers. They are happy drinkers. They are having <laughs> a ball, even during what could be the big one. So funny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Lily Taylor is Honey Pickett Bush. She is married to Robert Downey Jr.'s Bill Bush. Lily Taylor is one of those characters who recedes a little bit into the background for me. She doesn't have quite as much that she is going through, I feel like, relative to other characters. I'm still very drawn to her performance. Um, she and Robert Downey Jr., uh, live in an apartment complex, a very kind of typical um, kind of drab L.A. apartment complex. They're watching a neighbor's apartment for them. Based on the short story Neighbors. Ah, there you go. Um, you mentioned the fish tank. There are some these striking shots in that neighbor's apartment because they have this fish tank that's in the wall. And Lily Taylor's character is sort of like magnetized to this fish tank a little bit in a very kind of subtle way but there are these like little shards of glass within the tank for decoration and she seems like kind of absorbed by these um fish are kind of a funny motif in this movie um she's absorbed by that fish tank she brings a couple goldfish over to her mom's house we have the fishermen fred ward brings the fish over to um the barbecue later um i like these little motifs that you know you 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 can't really attribute that much significance to fish, but it's just these little, it's a little rhyme, a little bit of poetry that just kind of runs through them. I like that a lot. Would you believe that Raymond Carver likes to fish? I could believe that. That seems about right. Um, what else about Lily Taylor? Um, I mean, she. I think she's defined mostly in terms of her relationship with... Robert Downey Jr., like a lot of these characters are, um, with their romantic partners. Um, he is fairly douchey. He mm-hmm. is an aspiring Hollywood makeup artist, like focused particularly on grotesque makeup designs. Um, I think this has like one of the, the best fake outs of the movie where we get the sense he, Robert Downey Jr.'s character might be capable of violence with that elbow punch to the couch that you mentioned. Um, and there's the shot where we suddenly see Lily Taylor and she looks all bruised up and we think a fight has broken out. And then we realize he's just been practicing her makeup or he's been practicing his makeup work on her. Super funny. I think it's um, a quick cut out of like a violent, tenuous situation too. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really nice like match cuts along those kinds of lines um i I ultimately just feel kind of bad for her because we see how terrible robert downey jr's character is um in terms of his interest in other women and whatnot um but uh it's still just a solid performance given how kind of little she has to do um i'm still kind of drawn to her character yeah very very human yeah yeah for sure um what you got next well, if we're pivoting back down to one, I will do Francis McDormand. All right. All right. So we're introduced to this character after her son answers the phone. This is following Stormy Weathers, 
Peter Gallagher's character, going into the phone booth after receiving the piss cup, taking a piss in the piss cup while calling his, uh, I believe, uh, separated wife, but not ex-wife yet. Like, I think that they haven't seen the papers yet. That feels right, um, yeah. Because she, her last name is Weathers, if I'm remembering correctly, is still as well. Um, it's just this really, really hilarious, um, like, introduction to a character. Um, the son tells Gallagher that it's it's mom's birthday today. They get on the phone. Um, there's an argument about him coming to get the child. He shows up and um, yells at her about the clock not being wound. It's something that recurs. You can get into that with Gallagher later. Um, but what's particularly interesting is the um, the way that she's supposed to be like this seductress who's playing three men at the same time. Mm-hmm. But seems totally uninterested in like all of the men. Like she she's never caught looking at them with like a seductive glance. Like there's no longing in her looks the way that like Julianne Moore, even though she's mad at Matthew Modine, or even though they're arguing, there's there's a, a charge of sexuality to that look. McDormand is just like totally sexless. Um she's just like an object that's going in and out of these men's lives, but not really desiring any of them herself um which is like really i don't know it's it's kind of ugly (laughs) it is i would agree um yeah i i don't have too much more on her do you have anything you want to say about mcdormand yeah she kind of like disappears for a little while because she goes on her vacation supposedly to tahoe but hour 45 i think it's a good long stretch till she yes suddenly shows up with man number three Mm -hmm. the Pilot? Airline pilot? I think he's wearing, like, an airline... Yeah, yeah, I think he's an airline outfit. pilot, but I think that that's actually her sister in Tahoe. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Bunny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would he's agree. Too he hasn't met Bunny. Yeah. Them together strike me as another example of less than uh, textbook great parents. Um, they both seem more interested in just... Um, their anger with each other than they are in their son. Peter Gallagher, you know, calls up his his wife. They're basically unmarried at this point to say that he's going to come over for the kid's birthday, but he's really there just to push her buttons. I don't think he no, cares. No, to get the kid. It's her birthday. Oh, is that right? Her, yeah, yeah. yeah she's that, turning 29 again. You're right. You're right. It's his day with the kid, but it's her birthday. Um, but, like, he seems totally disinterested in actually spending the day with the kid. It's just about pushing her buttons, and then he ultimately doesn't even take the, the kid. Um, and Francis McDormand is clearly not interested in providing anything resembling consistency for her son. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, but anyways, Peter Gallagher is um, a sort of, like, uh, oddly cheerful-looking guy with uh, with some real spitefulness to him, because um, as soon as he finds out that Francis McDormand's character is sleeping with someone new, he very on those jungle sheets with 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 her jungle sheets. That's right. As soon as she leaves, he goes and systematically destroys everything in her house, from the couch to the TV to her clothes with a chainsaw and scissors, everything except the grandfather clock that was his. 
keeps that in tip-top shape. And there is something bizarre about, like, how systematic he is in going about this house and destroying everything in sight just to um, get back at her for this slight. Um, but leaving the te- television working. Yeah. And <laughs> the carpet ends up nice and clean when a uh, carpet cleaner salesman comes over because Frances McDormand has won a uh, contest of some kind and she's earned a free carpet cleaning. Um yeah, we uh, his character kind of stops developing for a while, but it's nice to every once in a while check in on where he's at in terms of his destruction of this house. So, he's fine. He's fun, for sure. Yeah. Um, back to me, then? Back to you. That's, I don't have too much more to say about Peter Gallagher, unless you got stuff. Um, I mean, he's he introduces, or he is the introduction of the film, um, mm-hmm. ostensibly through being a helicopter pilot. Other than that, he's just kind of uh, extremely vindictive and childish. I think we kind of pretty much that. yeah. Moving on, two children <laughs> trying to raise a child bad. Exactly. Um, well, let me go ahead and do what you did and tackle two at once. Then I'm going to do Madeline Stowe with Tim Robbins and some good ones. Uh, it's, it's hard to pick which favorite moment to go with. So let me, I'll just start with Madeline. Um, and that'll also introduce Tim's character. So there's a moment, uh, when he's come home fairly early in the film and is, I think, I think this is maybe before he yells about his belt, um, being with the dog Mm -hmm. and he's, he's going to leave for the day. He'd just come home and, and now he's leaving again. And as he ducks out, she grabs his hand and she smells his fingers and she starts smiling and laughing at him because she can smell the infidelity mm-hmm. of being with Francis McDormand. And it is just this great, uh, like vicious, venomous scene where you can tell that she doesn't care, but she likes making him squirm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so fun because I think she asks a follow up question about where he's going now after being out so late. And, you know, he can't tell her because the nature of the investigation is just, it's so uh, fun. It's so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's such a rich character. And she's so fun to watch that her, uh, her dimples, when those things light up the screen, mm. it just, it, it makes the whole scene kind of happier. Um, there's a nude scene as well, um, with Madeline Stowe that I feel like we have to address. Um, it was originally, um, she was originally going to play Julianne Moore's part. And then her new role was kind of invented on the fly by Altman, from what I understand. And she insisted that the reason she couldn't do the nude scene that Julianne Moore does is because she just can't do that argument without a bottom on and that she could do a nude scene. And so he came up with this thing uh, where she's kind of looking like she's in ecstasy. Uh, I mm-hmm. think just, I don't know if she's fully naked or just topless, but uh, Julianne Moore's character is painting her. And it's, it's a very funny scene because her Julianne Moore's husband comes home and has mm-hmm. a conversation and basically just does not address the fact that there's another man's wife in his home naked, being painted. And when he leaves, 
uh, Julianne Moore and Madeline Stowe both erupt into this great laughter that, um, you know, you could just tell it feels like they're real sisters. Like they're really having like a great inside joke at someone else's expense. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's kind of a jarring like laugh. It is so like full throated. It's such a cackle they're having. Uh It's great. There are like, this is definitely a comedy. There's a lot of funny stuff throughout. Sometimes there are these like little like bursts where it's like, it's like this uncomfortable kind of comedy that comes through because it's so kind of, kind of loud. You know, I also think about like those screams that Matthew Modine does. Um, These little moments that sort of just hint at kind of like, I don't know, the intensity behind some of this stuff. Um, that, that laugh is like so strong that that's yeah, like it's, a hysteric it's joviality. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and now I'll pivot into Tim Robbins, who you can't really address that Madeline Stowe. Um, so most importantly, he comes home, all the kids are yapping. The dog is yapping. This is a $35 belt. And he, he picks it up and it's just ripped the shreds by the dog outside. I think the dog's name is Susie. You hear it called both he and she throughout the runtime of the film. I think you find out that it's a he, but they call it Susie. There's not really any final resting place there. Like, there's no real assurance of this dog's gender. But you can say that the dog's name is Susie. Uh, Tim Robbins has been lamenting this dog since the runtime was was begun. And um, he proceeds to go inside and exit and take Susie with him without the kids or Madeline catching him and he puts it in the sidecar of his motorcycle he drives on to a different suburban neighborhood that you'd hear on a highway report and he drops that dog off and Susie is someone else's problem great great stuff uh yeah they i feel like all these couples have very different ways of managing their emotions and frustrations with each other and they are certainly one of the couples who are more open in their uh stain and frustration with each other um and, and I, I like that madeline stowe is clearly not stupid when he is telling her you know that he's off to fight crime uh in some fashion or another obviously she knows what's going on yep it's uh it's like a vitriolic honesty you kind of have to respect it you know at least they're an honest couple even though they're <laughs> yeah. lying through their teeth <laughs> that's what's very str- i completely agree that's what's funny it's like it does seem like it's almost working for them in a weird way because they are, are one of the couples we see have sex at one mm-hmm. point and they seem very into each other. It is this kind of love-hate thing that yeah, seems there, to exist between passion. them. It's a French passion. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to mention the way that he gets on the fucking motorcycle. He's just such a... Mm. He's a Dudley do-right cheese ball getting on that thing. He's mounting it like a horse, proud spine thrown up as high as he can make it shoulders thrown back as far as they can go nose pointed directly at the sun just a total goober uh totally self-obsessed with himself um and and then the the moment uh with um is it ann archer is that claire the clown Mm -hmm. uh pulls her over Mm. how many clowns can you fit inside this car man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Great line. Great line. Uh, any reflections on, on Tim Robbins, or do you want to take us in a different direction? Uh, I, I think I would second a lot of that. No, I don't think I have anything to add. If anything comes to mind, I'll, I'll circle back. But I will use the clown car reference and move to Anne 
Archer as Claire KK, aka Claire the Clown. Um, she's a little hard to separate from Stuart, her husband, but I'll only maybe loosely chat about that. I kind of like that we get two very different feelings out of this one character. Like, for most of the time that she's in the clown suit, it's played for humor and, like, levity. Um, I just don't mind watching her drive around town in her clown paint and clown outfit and clown car. It's just a pleasant sight. Um, and then we, we totally start to see who this, who she is behind this outfit once uh, her husband, Fred Ward's character, returns home from the fishing trip. Um, and he tells her about uh, this body that they found up in the river, and she just cannot get her head around uh, their decision to let this body sit overnight. Um, and just the sensitivity in her that it reveals, I think, is really kind of striking. And her continuing to ask the same questions, like she just cannot understand how he, he could possibly have managed to just continue fishing with something like that just out of sight, just right around the bend of the river. Um, you know, like multiple characters in this movie are, are affected by death, but she is very emotionally affected by just the idea the idea of it. I think she can't imagine having encountered that, um, and have been able to just turn a blind eye and keep fishing. Um, but what's so brilliant, I think is the punchline that comes f- later after the earthquake. And she's, um, watching the news at Matthew Dope Modine and Julianne Moore's house. And it says on the news that only one person died. And she says, Oh, well, it's just one person. That's not too bad. Um, it's just the idea that the context matters so much in all these different stories um, and how she was so kind of distraught after hearing this story from her husband and so easy to so easily shrugged off this one death she hears about. Um, and when that the one death happened. wasn't actually from the earthquake. Exactly. Exactly. Which is even, um, yeah, even queasier. Um, so, yeah, she's great. I'm a fan. I agree. I am also a fan. Um, well, I've only got pairs left, or rather I've got a, a triple and I've got a double. So do you want to lead in, um, to a different character? So there's a little bit more balance. Cause I've got the, um, the cellist and the singer, and then I've got our, um, group of fishermen. Uh, why don't you take us to the fishermen? Fishermen? Yeah. All right. So our lead fisherman here is going to be Fred Ward who is the husband of Claire the Clown. Um, let me go ahead and find his exact name. It's going to be Stuart Kane, and Ann Archer's character is Claire Kane. Um, Stuart Kane is up fishing with a couple of buddies in Buck Henry and Huey Lewis. They each play Gordon Johnson and Vern Miller in that same order. Um, this trio of men is introduced surreptitiously at the cafe in which Lily Tomlin is working while Earl is ordering a tuna fish sandwich because the the Greek is managing today and don't order anything you can't pay. They have her bend over to get butter and her skirt happens to be too short and she exposes her bottom and all three men uh, appear to be jeering and enjoying what they're looking at and so they proceed to ask her to go back to get more of whatever it was that was in that drawer causing Earl to walk out angrily. Um, it's a it's a great introduction to, you know, just kind of the 
mood of these three men. You know, they're on their getaway. They're gonna be uh, a, they're gonna be raucous, and they're they're gonna be maybe a little bit um, on a on a different moral plane than we might quote as acceptable, mm. um, especially now uh, in in twenty twenty one. There's there's just a, a mood set there, and these men proceed to drive up to go on their fishing trip. It's a four hour hike one way. They get up there late in the afternoon, and they're lucky to make it to their campsite before dark. They throw their backpacks out, and um, one is thrown out particularly harsh, and half the supply of whiskey is exploded on the ground, um, which our, our character Fred Ward laments quite quite lavishly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the men arrive. It's nighttime, and they're kind of setting up camp, um, and they're going to get some fishing in that evening um before they even set up just just because they made the trek and uh huey lewis uh goes and plods up a boulder rips his uh unit out of his jeans and proceeds to take a piss in the river against the men's instructions don't pee in the river they had said and then he looks down and realizes that in that river beneath his urinary stream is a naked dead woman facing the surface and this is kind of the conceit that you just referenced it affects a lot of um like side story here but it doesn't ever become more meaningful than the child who is hit by the car um the men go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and eventually decide to not hike out and rather to stay and tie her with a nylon rope to the shore so that she doesn't go anywhere They'll get their fishing in tomorrow, and then they'll hike out the next day and report it, which they do, but we don't see. Um, it's it's a great moral moment. Um, I still don't know how I feel about it, um, because what goes into these three men having the same time off in a year together um, to go on this trek, you know, to sacrifice that whole thing um, for a dead body that isn't going to change anything. It's an interesting moral quandary that anyone that had more means wouldn't be put in. But because Mm -hmm. these men are not men of means, and this is probably their vacation for at least that, you know, third of the year, it's, it's an interesting moral thing that I, I don't really have a, a particularly passionate read one way or the other on, which I'm very surprised by. This is one of the only ones where I don't really know that I fault them. Yeah, this is definitely one of the stories that gives you the what would you do kind of question, mm-hmm. whereas I don't think a lot of well, the other Well, I know ones... what I would do, and I wouldn't do what they did, but I don't know that I can cast aspersions on their choices. Yeah, um, I can't remember if we hear what Buck Henry and Huey Lewis do professionally, but the we hear after the trip that I think I think we hear Stewart say he's he's unemployed yeah yeah um, Fred's so, been unemployed yeah yeah so def, did the idea that this is a um, rare opportunity to check out from their 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 problems um, is a very real factor that they don't really talk about in there or maybe they maybe they do maybe they say how often do we get this opportunity or something like that but yeah um, it's a meaningful factor in the decision making process yeah and um, what's that fish now or deal with the body i think is what they say and and there's mm-hmm. a vote on what to do and you know it's it's um 
it is the pivotal moment of of that sequence for the men you know that goes on to they take the photographs and then there's that photograph incident that happens between buck henry and um uh, lily tomlin's daughter played by lily taylor mm-hmm. um at the photo hut near the end there's yeah i i don't know i really like this group of guys i think it tells a a true human story and the fact that i don't have aspersions personally towards them one way or the other and i understand where they're coming from i think that that really indicates a human story yeah i do i, I kind of like that the movie definitely kind of considers class and money as a factor in these people's lives but i would like not call this movie like a comment on class or anything mm-hmm. like that it isn't even remotely interested in trying to uh you know uh moralize about anything like that it just sort of sees that as a realistic uh influence on these people's lives yeah. there you have people that are unemployed or clearly don't have that much money and then there's not that wide of a band but i think matthew modine and julianne moore are probably the most well off they clearly have this more modern um looking house with a view of la they got a hot tub they are clearly on the high end of things um so it's not a huge um band of incomes but it clearly does give us a picture of the kinds of lives these people live their standard of living it's something like concrete journalism where there's no moral aspersions cast by the journalist just reporting of what they're observing yeah yeah all right moving on moving on all right i still have let's see here i still have julianne moore and matthew modine as marion and ralph wyman matthew modine is a doctor that's their source of income i get the sense that she is not formally employed in any compact in any uh formal uh way she She's tries to sell paintings to alex trebek you'll know there you go she is a painter she's kind of a figurative painter with kind of a surreal aspect to her paintings it's kind of like the edward munch scream thing but you just dial down the expressionism by a good factor and you're kind of getting Ballpark. close to what she's doing um their house is covered with her paintings, which I do think is maybe a nice hint about how well the selling of the art is going. There are a lot around that house, um, all quite all quite similar in their aesthetic, um, and they manage their added their their annoyance with each other in a completely different fashion from how someone like Tim Robbins and Madeline Stodio, who lash out and and yell without restraint. I feel like Julian Moore in particular is 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 very much about concealing her um maybe dissatisfaction with her marriage um and she's the uh one most keen on maybe withholding her infidelity which does eventually surface um but yeah i I kind of like um kind of the behind the back annoyance they express towards one towards one another like when julianne moore is on the phone with a dealer talking Mm -hmm. about her art and matthew modine's in the background rolling his eyes um and she talks about the the effect of the color in her work and that kind of thing um i think he picks up the phone and says whoops sorry that's right yeah that's right accidentally interrupts the call quote-unquote accident yeah yeah um matthew modine's character is the doctor that treats little boy casey who's in the main car accident uh in that thread um 
yeah, what to say about them? I don't know. I, I mean, I think this is an, an intriguing couple just because of how they kind of contrast with the couples who are more open in their disdain with each other. Um, they seem much more simply annoyed with each other in a way. I don't think he likes what she does. I think he's mm-hmm. sort of... Um, uh, he, he rolls her eyes at, at literally how she spends her days and she waits and waits and waits with her annoyance until she, he finally forces it out of her. Um, it's all just very, very real of, of a married couple not really wanting to confront the their uh, dissatisfaction with each other and eventually it, it bursts out. Um, An immense truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else? Um, well, I've got Lori Singer and Annie Ross. Do you want me to do them together or should I do them one and one? However you prefer. All right. All right. I think I'll start <laughs> with Lori Singer and then I'll wrap up with Annie Ross after you. All right. So Lori Singer is the cellist that we'd referenced earlier um, before we went down the um, long road that is talking about each of these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so her character name is Zoe Trainer. Her mother, played by Annie Ross, is Tess Trainer. Um, she's introduced as a, a. You can't even tell actually that she's not a boy, um, because of how she's dressed, wearing a hat. It's very hard to tell while she's playing basketball that she's not just one of these boys <laughs> that's playing basketball, though she's twice their age and a woman. Um, and then, um. Following that scene, I I think that uh, we see Casey walking toward the car accident um, and maybe he comes back and she's still there or maybe it's it's split up differently. Um, Like maybe there's a time lapse there, but at some point she ends up in the pool um, and she gets naked. Chris Penn is on the phone leering through the fence at her. Uh, She fakes death. Her mother throws an ice cube at her from her um you know, alcoholic beverage in which is always in her hand. Um, and she looks up and is, you know, bitter and angry. And that's just kind of, it's a good way to explain her kind of bitter and angry looking at things, not really ever belonging. I think I already used the word unmoored, but I think that she is a character who is absolutely the, the definition of that word. She doesn't really belong anywhere. She wants to know more about her father. Her mother won't tell her, um, her mother's constantly complaining and drowning her own sorrows and alcoholism. Um, and she doesn't really know what the meaning of her life is. She's clearly good, if not great at the cello. Um, but it doesn't bring her any personal, um, benefit. It doesn't actually increase the volatility or the value of her life or her experience. And her relationships with these, with these children appear to, to do that. And Mm -hmm. she's never gone to see her mother at the bar. And she finds out that Casey's passed and she goes to see her mother. Her mother brushes it off, treats it like nothing happened at all. And that's that's a pivotal moment where she she goes home and practices cello in the garage with the exhaust running, with the door closed and uh, commits suicide, which is um, foreshadowed earlier when her mother tells her to go get a drink um, when she's asking about her father and she she breaks the cup, I think on purpose, but I'm not sure, mm. um, and cuts her hand, and then she leaves a big bloody scene and pulls out of the garage. You know, so there's a bloody scene leading to the garage. So there's this this great foreshadow that really doesn't indicate anything on first viewing, um, and then it just happens, and you can't help but notice it. 
Um, I was really, really convinced by the macabre here, um, by her mastery over the instrument, her um, removal from reality and, and not being tethered to anyone really, sincerely. Um, and that that boy that she cared about dying, you know, just kind of being the, the thing that just pulled out someone who already wasn't emotionally stable and they just made a, a rash bad decision, which we already saw her exhibit with the glass and the blood. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a sad thing, but it, it's something that's definitely happened in my life. And I think a lot of people's life where it's just someone you love that you think is fine and doing stuff all of a sudden is dead, whether they did it themselves or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kept kind of thinking about just what it is she's feeling so severely that would that leads her all the way to the point of suicide. And definitely seems like it's, you know, seeing Andy McDowell and Bruce Davidson um, as they come home and seeing how clearly upset they are and kind of wanting her mom to, like, love her in as, as deeply as they clearly love their son um to put it i mean that i'm I'm simplifying it Mm -hmm. a little bit but it definitely feels like there is this yearning for more affection from her from her mom um and the and the dad who she never really had that makes her feel very alone and that is quite tragic what have you got all right uh are you gonna come back to the mom specifically i will come back okay cool i was gonna make sure we gotta talk about that music yeah um that's why i saved it for last there you go there you go the film um, I'll kind of talk about these two together. We still have Jennifer Jason Lee as Lois Kaiser and Chris Penn as Jerry Kaiser. Sean Penn's brother. What? No way. Yeah. I like him better. He's pretty great. That guy died in 2005. Really? Yeah. Bummer. He is great. Um, they're a married couple. They have two kids. She, Jennifer Jason Lee, is a phone sex worker. Chris Penn is a pool guy services and you're gonna pools. do a dialogue example of jennifer jason lee's dialogue on the phone on the x-rated cut of the episode okay that okay. You, you gotta sign up for like our patreon or something uh-huh. like that to uh-huh. get that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we get quite a few scenes of jennifer jason lee delivering just this absolutely filthy dialogue to her clients with this complete like emotional detachment from the content of what she's saying she's basically on autopilot as she does her job she's saying these deeply filthy things as she's feeding her baby or putting a diaper on the baby or just flipping through a magazine um like it's just second nature to her at this point it's super funny and and striking and then chris penn is always sort of like gazing at her as she does her work and i think those are probably some of the scenes where the zooms are maybe most effective for me because there's especially on first viewing so much ambiguity around what it is exactly. He is thinking as he listens to his wife, um, do this job. Um, is it, is it jealousy? Is it, um, wonder? Is it, um, anger? Like it's, it's, it's perfectly ambiguous as you watch it the first time. I think it's a a little different the second time. What do you see? what he ultimately is capable of and does. Why don't um, you tell us uh, what character from Of Mice and Men he resembles? Oh, that's right. In the one of the Blu-ray extras, Altman compares him to Lenny in Of Mice and Men, right? Mm-hmm. 
a uh, apt comparison. Um, and yeah, um, I did not see what he ultimately does during the earthquake. This uh, a murder. He murders a a woman that he uh, f- um, that he and Robert Downey Jr. follow um, when they go on a picnic with their wives. Um, did you anticipate? That moment, I didn't think it would be murder. I thought it was going to be rape mm. because there there is a buildup of tension there. Um, because the camera goes with Robert Downey Jr. to go look at those caves that he's telling her that he's going to go show her, and there's an uneasy feeling that's been built up with Chris Penn, mm-hmm. and um, you're just worried. Um, but I didn't think that it would happen nearly that quickly, especially the first time. It's like they reach the tree line and then you hear her screaming and then you're like, okay, he's trying to rape her. And then it's mm. like, nope, that's murder. Yeah. Cause you're yeah. hearing the rock against a skull. Yeah. And you know, I feel like it's kind of, uh, going for this fake out where Robbie down, Robert Downey Jr. Seems like the more potentially violent guy with his elbow smashed into the couch. He just I mean, feels he's a sociopath. According to Altman, he feels like a loose cannon for sure. Like he, he seems like the more unpredictable guy in Chris Penn, or, or Jerry, the character Jerry is, is is harder to read. He's a little more enigmatic. Um, I think it's perfectly played. Um, those there's just kind of a blankness to his expressions that's just kind of unsettling because you just can't figure him out. Um, and that is definitely one of the more shocking uh, conclusions for any of the threads. I think. Um, yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee though is. Hilarious. Big fan of uh, her role here. She does fantastic work here. Um, All right. That brings me to my last character that I'll be covering. And that is Annie Ross. Boy, how do you talk about the backbone of a movie? Um, So I I would say that um, just to directly steal from Altman, Altman... the clothes line of the narrative is Casey getting hit by the car. I, I think that the uh, the pillars that are hanging that clothesline, though, are the club that Annie Ross is working and the pipes that, she, that she's letting go there. And this unorthodox, jazzy blues, husky, smoky voice that, that her, her songs and her lyrics, they're offbeat, they're off kilter. They're delivered in a very non-formulaic way. It's not following the rules of composition as we know them. It's it's almost deliberately asymmetrical against the convention. Um, and it, it brings a, a great vibration. It brings a, a great soul depth to the, to the film. Um, and it, it brings great moments. You know, there's the the oral sex moment at the club with Jennifer Jason Lee and uh, a fellow who's at the bar who'd gotten into it with, um, with Earl, I think previously um, you got tons of moments of Earl at the bar. Um, you've got when um, Lori Singer goes to see her mother. Um, there's, there's just a bunch there. Um, this is where there's the confrontation with Casey's death, meaning nothing. Um, and, there's there's just macabre here just like in laurie singer's character there is a deep well of sadness in annie ross and the lyrics get to it um obviously there's the 
uh, song to Hell with Love, which mm-hmm. I think is maybe one of the greatest uh, moments in, in the film itself, if not in Altman's filmography. And um, there's just, there's this enigmatic deep well of, of jazzy blues, sadness and death and suicide and all that stuff built into her before the events even happen. Um, the band that she plays with, they strip her voice out and they just play that background music tons throughout the film. It, it just is the natural background uh, score. And that was another choice that Altman made that apparently, you know, was unconventional and people didn't particularly like. Um, yeah. Why don't you speak to her, the evocativeness of her songs, whatever strikes you. Oh, she's great. Big fan. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree, agree that, like, there's, especially in the lyrics themselves and the subtext of the music all sort of speaks to kind of the some of the tragedy throughout the movie. I do also feel like there's, this might just be more of the composition of the film and not so much her songs, actually, now that I think about it. But I do think a lot of the music in the film is what helps to give the movie this very kind of relaxed quality. Mm-hmm. Um uh, which, yeah, it's probably more the the soundtrack per se than the songs she's singing herself in the club, um, which are sadder in nature. Um, but yeah, I agree. That is very much a kind of like um, home base for the movie. And it's always just nice when we cut back there. It's like mm-hmm. you kind of just step out of the stories for a minute and you're back in the club. You're, you just feel like a visitor in there. Those scenes are great. Like, I'm always more than happy to just cut back to the club. Yeah, it's familiar. It's a comfort blanket. You said it's kind of relaxed. It's mm. If I had to, like, try to describe it physically, it, it's like you're wearing, like, business attire. But mm. you just got to undo the bottom, the very bottom button of that shirt, and the top two. So you're you're relaxed. You're still constricted by having to, to be dressed conventionally, but you're more relaxed now. Um, because it is still, you know... Uh, a place of impropriety where violence and, and things can happen, but it's, it's more laid back. There's less chance of actual death and more just unseemliness. Yeah, for sure. It's good. It's a great location. I like it. Um, my very last character is Lyle. Love it as Andy Bitcower, the baker, specifically a cake baker, um, who is, Delivers cakes cakes to multiple characters, but is involved primarily in Andy McDowell and Bruce Davidson's storyline as they order a cake for Casey's upcoming birthday before he is hit by the car. And then uh, when Bruce is home one night, when Casey's in the hospital, he blows off multiple phone calls that uh, he gets from Andy wanting to know what it is exactly they want on their son's birthday cake, and that uh, does not sit well with Mr. Bitcower, um, who in person is kind of a meek guy, mm-hmm. doesn't seem like he has much of a spine, not a confrontational person in real life, but uh, starts calling Andy McDowell and Bruce in the middle of the night and giving them these menacing phone calls uh, that are it's all the more unsettling because they're already going through such a harrowing experience. It's weird. When I was just like doing some casual browsing about the film, I did come across some comments saying that he is the weakest actor 
of the bunch. I did I, two. Did you two? I don't. Yeah. I, I I was probably on Letterbox actually, um, which I think I probably agree with, but mm-hmm. I don't know that I mind all that much. Um, I think he's one of the characters that actually has aged very well because there is something about his type that is very familiar in the internet age um, who doesn't have the confidence to be confrontational in real life, Mm -hmm. but is more than willing to call somebody up in the middle of the night and say terrible things, um, which is all too common uh, in the age of, of Twitter and all all of that kind of stuff where people are terrible to each other online and then they come face to face and they immediately back down and cower. Um, I think, I think he has aged in that sense in kind of an in- interesting way. Um, yeah. What'd you think of this guy? He's not too different, um, than a CD character that he plays in the player. Um, I don't think I like him as an actor, but I think that maybe that's useful because, I'm not supposed to like that character. So like it does the trick. It does the purpose of, of the objective of making you not like someone. Um, I don't really, I don't find that that thread has value in being paid off. Mm. I think I would rather have gone away from the film, not having an answer to who was leaving the voicemails. Mm. Um, and, and, like, have the same answer. You know, use Lyle Lovett earlier where he's giving the, the cake to Claire the Clown, where he's working in the shop. But just don't give us that that resolution. I don't think that that mm. was necessary. Um, and I, I think that the more time you spend with him, the more encumbered the film becomes by his lack of talent. I agree. There is something just that's just kind of weird about Lyle Lovett that I really can't put my finger on he's just he does have kind of a strange presence to me um that i don't know is intentional. one of these things is not like the other <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um but i don't know why maybe it's just because there's already so much good stuff in the movie that something that's just a little weird that seems out of place is actually kind of like way out oh of that's place. interesting yeah um and then it just weirdly i don't mind because it's just so odd um but yeah he's not um He's he's not like the rest. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just just to kind of wrap up on Annie Ross and um, the the tone of those those songs, um, the songwriters for her were Elvis Costello, Duke Ellington, Bono, and The Edge. Um, there's just a few, but that's a pretty great list of. Um, original material writers of songs just for this movie. Yeah, kind of eclectic. Uh, you like you two guys with um, Elvis Costello. I wouldn't even put those together, but it works. Well, it's they're separate songs. They each oh, wrote gotcha, a separate gotcha. song. Um, so Edge and Bono wrote a song together. Duke Ellington wrote a song, and then um, Costello wrote a song mm. um, that she performs. And I, you, I think you can really feel like the. Uh, the panache of it like you can you can kind of sense that there's there's a right way to play the song and she's not playing it the right way but it's still great yeah for sure for sure um we haven't talked about the filmmaker himself much 
Uh, True. We did choose to do this character thing, so why don't we briskly mention a few filmmaking side of stuff? First thing I want to mention is Stephen Altman, uh, his son, did a phenomenal job of production design. Everything felt real believable. Um, I love that anecdote in the documentary about the fish tank and um, how he just builds everything out completely because it's much easier because his dad's an asshole and he'll want to use the one part of the set that he didn't finish. So it's easier to just do the whole thing the first time than to have to pivot. I thought that was a great anecdote and uh, really expressed a lot about Altman as a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I was really struck by how, you know, we get the the overlapping dialogue that he's very famous for and how you might think that would suggest sometimes that like the dialogue isn't as much, isn't as important. Like the content of the dialogue isn't as important as just kind of the texture and the feel of it. When I actually found that that's not entirely true. And I'm thinking of a scene like at the barbecue um, with Matthew Modine and Julian Moore and the other couple. And they're all kind of talking at once and, um, I think they're playing uh, Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, they're playing Jeopardy. And Julian Moore says to Matthew Modine, are you cheating? And he says, no, Marianne, you cheat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so unremarkable, but it's an obvious reference to the conversation from earlier and the way that, like, there's just, just no emphasis on it. Like, you pick up on it, on it, you don't. Um, I like that he, he doesn't underline this stuff. He just kind of lets it just exist, be in the flow of everything. Yeah. And I, I love that composition because I think that he explains it. I don't remember in which documentary or conversation, but where both these couples don't want to be alone as couples. Oh, so they're yeah, staying yeah. together with another couple because they're scared to be alone with each other. Um, I That's like such a deeply human thing. I, I really, really like that anecdote. And I think it is delivered perfectly. And then there's that that great like uh, physical gag that kind of shows how shitty things are where he forgets to check the fish and he goes and mm. pulls it up and he, he says, I thought you said 10 minutes an inch. And he said, yeah, inch in width, not length. <laughs> Key distinction. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I credit Altman with this, which is more just a comment about the movie overall. I do find it, despite all the very kind of dark undertones uh, and sad things that happen to be a weirdly very comforting movie, partly just because of how when you watch so many people leading such kind of messy, weird lives, you just feel a little less alone in your own kind of weirdness of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's something just very humane in how he suggests that we all have our idiosyncrasies and it's, it's very comforting. It's not alienating. Like, you know, this isn't the kind of movie where it's pointing out our oddities in a way that makes you cringe. I find it very comforting in a weird way. I do too. I think that there, a lot of that's just the source material of Carver himself and the way that he passively says things, you know, like how someone scraped at the, the drain board rather than saying she did the dishes. Mm. Right. There's, there's a total reframing there in, in the context of it. And that's where kind of the sexlessness comes from in his material um, is it's like, you know, the couple had sex or, you know, um, we went to bed together and, and then it's what she did the next morning in the shower and how she had the, had the loofah, her arm or something um, where he, he just kind of is continuously controlling things. And he's not saying that these things don't happen, but he's not giving them the same attention that um, is classically given. Um, which, you know, 
I think is a refreshing thing to see in cinema. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's just so obvious, like where he's had such influence. Um, I think we, we talked a little bit about PTA when we did our first impression of shortcuts, I think, but, um, also just this sense that like the movie it, with those zooms, it always feels like it's on the brink of something happening. There's mm-hmm. this tension underlying every scene. And that feels very much like a Safdie's kind of thing to me, especially uncut gems where um, it takes a while for something to actually kind of um, happen in that movie. But there are all these kind of red herrings just in the filmmaking that suggests something is kind of about to explode or erupt. Um, that makes for a very, compelling watch i agree um yeah this this is both a a film by a director and a film um that is essentially just an homage to the source material put in a blender and presented i I think with really a lot of love and care a lot of work and heart and soul from the performances i think that without the level of performance this doesn't work Um, This is one of those times where, like, a stellar cast comes together and is great, but they aren't the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Altman, maybe? Carver, I think, maybe outshines them all. Just, like, Mm -hmm. without the original source material, I don't think any of this works. Altman is super important, but, like, how often can you put all these stars together and say, like, well, the real star of the film is the material. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of the editing too, with just how smooth all these transitions are. There's so many freaking transitions just from one story to the next, and loop back on stories that you haven't visited in a while. Um, uh, Where'd you get that smooth. from, Earl? Doctor left that? it in the limousine. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, there are little cuts that just uh, are still in my memory, like when. Uh, Matthew Modine has this giant cup of milk, um, and we cut to a shot of milk on the television that, um, uh, Fred Ward's character is watching, and, um, Andy McDowell has a big old glass of milk for Casey when she's waiting for him to wake up. Mm -hmm. There are just these little motifs that you can't assign that much meaning to, and yet they still just kind of rhyme with each other in a very, very satisfying way. Very 90s, too, got milk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, this this is a film that is bigger than itself and um, kind of consists of, of tons of things. And I think that the title, Shortcuts, is a fantastic title because it's literally just short stories cut and then kind of pasted in a, in a semblance of order that I think rises... Um, a sense of artisanal artistic quality that is bigger than the sum of its parts, but also entirely, entirely dependent on those parts. Yeah. You take some of these stories on their own and they're not that interesting cinematically, at least like the Peter Gallagher destroying of the house would get old very fast. Like that just doesn't stand on its own in and out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just being able to occasionally check in on where he is at in his destruction, just works it's about how they all kind of fit together yeah uh this is one of my favorite films that we've covered on rescreening is it there for you definitely definitely all right we'll be back next month with the big heat till next time and that's another one in the can now you don't